With Rex, I offer my welcome. I'm Joel. Uh, we're concluding today our series, Marks of a True Church. And today, we're going to talk about church membership and discipline. And I thought a really good way to lean into that would be to talk about alien invaders. Jesse and me started talking sci-fi on the other day at the coffee shop. Any of you into sci-fi movies? few people all right all right independence day remember annihilation how about the movie signs it came out a number of years ago people in indiana would like get all the crop circles and what's going on with that yeah there's a movie called the invasion i think it came out about 15 years ago based on the original movie the body snatchers invasion of the body snatchers where earth is invaded by extraterrestrial parasites who then make human beings their hosts and these human hosts, what do they do? Well, they ally themselves with these invisible alien invaders to take over our planet, seeking to destroy humankind off the face of the earth. Friends, that's the storyline of the Bible. An invasion took place a long time ago on our planet. The very first two human beings, Adam and Eve, they swallowed the lie of a nefarious evil otherworldly character named Satan and the moment they swallowed that lie they were infected and an invasion of our world began in Genesis 3 cosmic supernatural beings named sin and death gained access into our planet invaded earth and mankind is now the battlefield upon which they wage war but in mercy God began a rescue operation, promising to save originally the children of Abraham in Genesis 12. The Old Testament is the story of Israel, a people God separated out from the wicked, infected nations, those who were all under the power of sin, death, and the devil. Now, the first thing God did, we talked about this two weeks ago, was he raised up prophets like Moses to be a lifeline, to give instruction to those in the war zone, and to remind them of God's promises that he would save. Next, God raised up priests like Aaron. Why? To deal with the contagion of sin still in their midst. Priests would cleanse the people. They'd offer sacrifices to bring restoration. But Israel had another leadership need. Someone to defend and to protect them from their enemies. What did Israel need? A king, Mike, yes. Israel needed a king and God gave them a king. King David, who would then defeat all of Israel's enemies, and they finally had rest. Of course, we know David was not the final answer to the alien invasion. David died, and actually he was replaced by evil kings, as well as there were evil prophets and evil priests. But this didn't wreck God's plan. In fact, all of these early leaders were actually setting the stage, because in love, God sent his own supernatural son, in a counter-invasion to save folks from all nations. Jesus, the Son of God, uninfected by sin, became human being, just like us, to defeat the invisible enemies that were waging war upon us. Jesus became the final prophet. As we saw two weeks ago, he became the final priest. And now we're going to read encouraging news from Hebrews 12 of how we can now run our race with our eyes fixed on the one who's on the throne. 
Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read the first 17 verses. It's also found on your bulletin in page number 5. And before we uh, turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this message that you've given to us and for the promise of a greater reality one day in a world that will be made new. We ask and pray that you will work in our hearts and lives to receive your word as what it really is, your word straight from your lips. May the preacher go away so that we may see Jesus seated on the throne. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. Now hear the word of our God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom? His father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So today we conclude our series entitled Marks of a True Church, the marks being faithful preaching, the sacraments, and discipline. These three marks reveal whether Jesus is present as prophet, as priest, and as king. Jesus, our prophet, makes his presence known through preaching that shines light into the darkness, making known the will of God for our salvation. Jesus, our priest, makes himself known in the Lord's Supper and in baptism showing us his final sacrifice for sins, washing us and setting us apart from the world. 
And Jesus shows himself as our king, as we're going to read, learn about, by bringing us under his power, by ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. We've just read in Hebrews how Jesus went to the cross to defeat sin and shame. And having conquered death, he is now seated on the heavenly throne as king over all. Now we've actually been, if you've noticed in Hebrews, all three sermons. Because Hebrews is all about the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Hebrews says, don't get distracted by anything else. In fact, we don't even know who wrote it. The author doesn't even let himself be a distraction to you. Ever notice that? He doesn't introduce himself like other New Testament letters. I mean, we've been going through James. We'll be doing that later. Remember how that starts? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Hebrews wastes zero time with introductions. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. <laughs> he was like, boom, and you're whisked right in, right? Why? Friends, Hebrews is like the New Testament emergency room. The New Testament emergency room. And you patients, you readers, you, you readers are patients in crisis. I've been working at the hospital, and I've been called in as a chaplain for a number of 911s. Do you want to know what that's like? A lot like this Hebrews introduction. There I am. I get called in. I'm standing by trauma room one, waiting. And when I see the ambulance pull up, my heart starts thumping. Because, boom, the doors fly open. They whisk the patient in. The paramedics pick up the patient. One, two, three. Transfer him to the bed. At that point, there are zero introductions. Whoosh! A doctor swoops in, shouting all kinds of things to nurses. Snip, snip, snip. There's a nurse cutting the pants right off a patient. There's another nurse putting needles in the patient. Another nurse putting in braces. You have another person bringing in machines, hooking them all up. And me? I'm James. I have to try and insert my presence in this frenzy of activity. I'm trying not to get in any way, in these ways. I try to get within close enough range where the patient can actually see me. And when I finally do get their attention, I'm James. Hi. I'm Joel, chaplain of EGH and family support. Greetings. As they say, they're just stunned with a swarm of people working on them. You see the difference between Hebrews and James? Hebrews is the emergency room for people, infected people on planet Earth. Humanity has been hijacked, kicked down, beaten, infected by sin, death, and the devil. But in these last days, the good news is we have a safe space and a supreme Savior. A safe space and a supreme Savior. Just like the hospital is a safe place. I've been there when shootings happen. And there are police officers standing there guarding the entrance. Without my badge, I'm not getting in. Well, the church is to be like that as well. 
King Jesus is here to defend and protect us from evil. That's why we have membership. Your baptism is your badge that says you belong here. God makes a clear line of distinction between those who are in and those who are out. And friends, all people are either in the kingdom of God or they're out. They're sinners in league with the devil, infected, whether they realize it or not. They may not know they're infected by alien invaders. You see, Adam and Eve sinned and everyone was infected. And did you know that God immediately drew a clear line of distinction? He put up a perimeter. Genesis 3, right after that happened, with angels and flaming swords, nobody's allowed in here. That line of distinction continued once the rescue mission began with Israel. There were physical boundaries, actually, right, to the land, but there were also spiritual boundaries. Holiness codes. What happened when a person decided not to be righteous and chose evil? You're out. God kicked them out. Now, after Jesus took the throne over the entire planet, well, there's no more physical boundaries, but spiritual boundaries remain. The New Testament church assumes membership no less than the Old Testament Israel. I know this rubs our American individualistic tendencies, our inclusivity that we love so much, but this is the Bible storyline. And this is necessary to our witness. How so, Joel? Well, suppose a man was attending Heart City Church, maybe for years, and he claimed to be a Christian. But he had a reputation in the community as a drug dealer, and he had multiple sex partners. And a neighbor came up to me and says, Pastor Joel, how could you let him in your church? I say, well, we're very happy, he comes, because we want him to hear the gospel. Our doors are open to anyone and everyone. But he's an attender, not a member. We will not vouch that he belongs to King Jesus. Members must make vows that they will submit to King Jesus. Friends, membership is how we can love our world without ruining our witness or our own health. Or our own health. Back to the ER illustration. The church is to be, at least in part, as Ed Welsh says, a hospital for members needing restoration. A safe place where we can be cured. It's actually a rehab center where we can be put back on our feet before we're heading back out for our deployment. That hospital illustration helps us to see the importance also of church discipline. Church discipline. And also why a sermon on church discipline might be an uncomfortable one for some. Like in the ER room. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. In the moment, Discipline seems painful, not pleasant. The Bible doesn't lie about it, but the Bible isn't shy about it. Nine times here, we hear about discipline in Hebrews 12 because God is saying discipline is for our good. So let's ask the question, what does the Bible teach us about discipline? Well, first, discipline shows us that we're actually children of the Father and not illegitimate children. What's the difference? (laughs) all the difference in the world between being inside the family and outside the family because the fact is we're all infected we're all sick with sin but the father loves us 
you parents probably will understand. It's a lot less gross when your child sneezes or throws up on you than when it's somebody else's child, right? Even though it's still gross, yeah. When we mess up, when we puke, God looks at us because we're his children. He actually looks at us like his own son because we're in his son. Notice that actually our discipline follows on the, follows on the heels of Christ's, the beloved son's suffering. Actually, chapter 5 in Hebrews talks about how Jesus endured discipline and was, he learned obedience and was made perfect. Secondly, discipline is not instituted by the church, but by God. That's what this passage teaches us. Hebrews 12 says it's instituted by King Jesus. It is the discipline of the Lord, verses 5, verses 6, of Jesus, as much as it is the discipline of our Heavenly Father, verses 7 and verses 9. Now, we can go wrong two ways when we're disciplined. Notice verse 5. We can uh, regard it lightly, uh, pretty much ignore it, just kind of be like, yeah, whatever, God. Or when discipline comes, we can grow weary and faded, faint-hearted. Oh, God, you're killing me. Oh, God. All right. Parents, you know kids who fall in those two categories. Children, if your parents never disciplined you, they wouldn't be loving you. I've known children who were never disciplined by their parents. They're an absolute mess. I've also known churches where there's little to no discipline. Same is true. The absence of discipline indicates a church, church lost sight of God's love that is always behind it. The absence of discipline indicates that a church has lost sight of God's love that is ever behind it. Discipline shows us that our Father loves us, that he has called you to be his children. He's treating us as sons, not as enemies. And the third thing that I want us to think about is that discipline has purpose, and three in particular. And in the first place, our healing and our holiness. We find that here in this passage. God is using discipline to remove the infection of sin. It's to purify us, to restore our humanness, making us into a peaceful people who are righteous. Our hands no longer droop and then click that button and look at that thing we shouldn't. Our knees no longer knock and we fall over when temptation comes our way. We no longer walk in the crooked ways of the world because we're keeping our eyes fixed on our king who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was that joy? Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 read, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's joy was that day when he would present us to himself in full splendor, full stop. Friends, the good news is not that you are attractive. Most men look for an attractive bride, right? But we're infected with sin. We've done a lot of dirty things. And we continue to turn from God's promises to swallow the lies of Satan. Sexual immorality, the delicacies of this world that defile, 
This Bible is rated R blunt when it says we're a bunch of adulterous whores. I won't apologize because the Bible says that. The good news is that Jesus gave himself not for a bride who is pretty, but to make her so. Jesus is at work so that on that day when he returns, that joy that he's been looking for will be there. Ladies, you won't need any makeup from that point on. Jesus will look you in the eyes and say, you are splendid. You are perfect, my love. True holiness is not boring and dull. No, it is radiant. It is glorious. It gives you your virginity back, blotting out every dirty thing that you've ever done or had done to you. Discipline's first purpose is to preserve the purity of those betrothed to their king. We are cleaning ourselves up for him. The second purpose of discipline is about the restoration of the sinner. And we see in our Matthew text where Jesus gives us the steps of discipline. It's next on your bulletin. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Discipline is God's gracious gift given to all, not just to leadership. It's everyone's privilege, everyone, to help prevent potential infection that arises in each of us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes, Where defection from God's word in doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Nothing is more cruel than leaving someone in their sin. Nothing is more compassionate than calling them back to Christ and sometimes in a very severe way. A brother or sister has sinned against you, has offended you. Go talk to them and no one else. Think about it. If Bob and Sue have an issue and Sue goes and talks to Jill and Bob talks to Bill, what happens? Not restoration, only further rupture and sides, divisions. Now, if Sue won't listen to Bob one-on-one, then let him get, go get Jill and Sue maybe together. Maybe with Bill. Sorry, messing these names up. You understand what I'm saying, though? Go get those other brothers. Don't talk to them first. In fact, maybe Jill will be able to point out that Bob isn't hearing Sue correctly. In fact, it may be Bob who has the sin issue. Maybe he's being too judgmental. And then Jill and Bill can be of help to him. And healing and forgiveness can happen, and a brother is gained, not lost. 
And notice also, this is not a top-down model. Jesus doesn't say, oh, go to the church leaders when someone sins. No, you go yourself and gain your sibling back. In fact, you need to be helping me too. Leaders blow it, and we need your love. If you come to me and I'm not hearing you, you can go to Presbytery where I'm a member. We have a ministerial welfare committee. Bring a brother or two and come talk with me if I'm not hearing you. That's the wonderful thing about the PCA. None of us are above fault or above receiving help. Praise be to Jesus. Now, if the evidence of sin is clear and this person won't listen, the point of the second step, if we don't get anywhere there, then it comes to the attention of the whole church. Why? Because we're all in this together. Sin can infect us if it's left unchecked. If that person won't listen, well, that's when the keys come out. They're to be excommunicated. I know that sounds harsh, but this is still about their restoration. It happened to a man in the Corinth church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul told the church to hand him over to Satan. Why? Paul says, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Excommunication is a wake-up call. What happens? Suddenly, I have no assurance of salvation. Well, I can still have my sin for now, but I must also face the reality that my eternal soul is in danger. And when I see God has let Satan off the leash and coming for me, (laughs) I may well turn back and repent. Discipline always has as its goal the restoration of the sinner. Love of people is what we must keep in mind when discipline happens. I have seen it done more out of love of the law than love of the person, and that's never right. Discipline is not about putting the screws to someone so that they feel the consequences. Trust me, they'll get theirs from God. Nobody gets away with it. If we put the screws to someone, then we'll actually keep them from obtaining the grace that Hebrews was stressing. That's why shunning is wrong, as so many churches do it around here, especially in this county. Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He had a reputation for being their friends. He loved them. He showed forth no limits forgiveness to them. Verse 21, and then Peter came up and said to him, he's struggling with this, see it? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter comes assuming there's a limit to grace. There's a forgiveness limit, Jesus. Just let me know where it's at. (laughs) Jesus says, no, not so, Peter. We forgive. The point isn't 77. He says, you forgive and lose count. You just keep forgiving. And then Jesus says, let me tell you the story of a merciful king. A merciful king. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Not a pity for him. The master of that servant released him 
and forgave him the debt. This is incredible. We talked about it in Bible study recently. The servant owes the king 10,000 talents. And you're thinking right now, well, how much is a talent, Joel? One talent is equivalent to 16 years of an average wage, 16 years of wages, or about 6,000 days of work. <laughs> the first question that comes to your mind, how in the world did this fellow rack up this kind of debt? <laughs> I mean, really. Question two, well, so Joel, what is the actual amount he owes? Well, I added it up. 6,000 days times, let's just say, $200 a day times 10,000. The answer is he owes a bazillion dollars, okay? A bazillion. In other words, he deserves to be locked up forever. He can never pay it back. Which makes the mercy of this king so remarkable. When he confesses a debt he cannot possibly pay and like, I'll pay it all back, which he can't do. The king forgives it all. Friends, each one of us owes a bazillion dollars to God. Not because your sin is so great. Don't think too much of yourself. But because of who you've sinned against. We sang about it earlier. Our great God. You can never repay your debt to your almighty creator. That's why the gospel is such good news. King Jesus came with the infinite resources to pay the debt. That's the gospel. So what's your response to it? What's your response? Listen to one guy's response. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's heavy. The servant who was forgiven much well, he's been sinned against too. He's out 100 denarii, and that's nothing to sniff at. That's like about a third year of wages. What if somebody owed you fifteen, twenty thousand dollars 20000 Wouldn't you be ticked if they couldn't pay it back? The only way we can be merciful to our debtors, and people will sin against us, is to have your eyes fixed on the forgiving king that we read about at the start of Hebrews 12. It's the only way our capacity for forgiveness can match the experience of the sins against us. Notice verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. The failure of one brother to show mercy to another brother 
in the household of God caused great distress to the community. Failure to be merciful and patient can cause great hurt in a church. We have to have great patience with one another. The only way discipline is going to work. As an inner city ministry, where people are very broken, very infected by these invisible invaders, by sin, we must be ready to play the long game. Inner city pastor Mez McConnell tells the story, and I've used this before, but it's profound, I find, of talks about 13-year-old Innocentia. He writes, she'd lived on the streets for most of her short life. Her parents had abandoned her at five years old, and from the age of six onward, she sold her body for sex to pay for food and to feed her glue habit. When we found her, she was in a mess. One of her arms had been crippled from a beating she took on the streets from a john. All of her teeth were missing, and she had been raped countless times. One day, when she heard the life-transforming truth about God, her sinful position before him, and the good news of what Jesus had done, she wanted to repent on the spot. We prayed with her and trusted that she had made a genuine profession of faith. Several days later, we found Innocentia, barely conscious in the streets, a bag of industrial strength glue at her feet. Incidentally, this glue is far deadlier than heroin. My Brazilian team was devastated and angry. Her repentance had seemed so genuine. We got her to her feet, cleaned her up at our center, and spoke to her about the commitment she had made to Christ. Oh, Pastor Mez, she said, I do love Jesus. I have turned from my sin. Last night I turned a client down, and I am now doing only six bags a day instead of ten. She beamed at me with pride, and I felt chastened. Was I really expecting she'd be a finished product on day one of conversion? And friends, none of us are finished products. It'll take time. Repentance is also going to look different, and it may be slow for folks who have been ravaged in this war zone we call planet Earth. We must be patient, understanding, and trusting that God is glorified in their repentance, no matter how slow the progress. And that's the third purpose of discipline, the glory of God. Our last passage, 1 Timothy three fourteen and 15, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There is so much in the letter of 1 Timothy, all six chapters. But right here in the middle, Paul gives the reason why he wrote this to Timothy. If I delay, he says, Timothy... You need to know how members of the church of the living God should behave. Paul is concerned about the behavior of the members. Paul says Christ's church is to be a pillar of the truth. So what does a pillar do? A pillar holds something up. The church holds up the truth of who God is and what he has done. So what's a buttress do? It firms something up. In this case, the gospel. Now, the gospel is true with or without the church and their behavior. But, 
And this is the point I'm going to close with. The church provides living proof of the gospel by how we behave. Most people don't reject the gospel because they went to seminary and dug deeply into the Bible and the original languages any more than you and I reject, decided to reject communism because we decided to read 2,000 pages of Da Capitas by Karl Marx. No, we reject communism because we see its effects in China and in Russia and other places. Same is true here. People will evaluate the gospel by what it creates in the church, by how it makes them feel as they visit, and they experience the relational tone here. What do we want them to experience here at Heart City Church? We have an amazing opportunity. We live in an angry culture where sin is at work trying to destroy humanity. Here, we want them to see the, beautiness, the beauty of humanness being restored, a counterculture to that culture where we stick together under the rule and protection of our loving King Jesus who disciplines us for our good. I'll end with a formula I'm borrowing from Ray Ortland. Gospel plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. That's our formula. Gospel plus time. Safety plus time. Basically, we need multiple treatments of the gospel. Week after week, hearing the good news. We need the safety of a community that has non-accusatory empathy is willing to speak the truth in love about the sin that destroys. And we need to give it time <laughs> because change takes time. But our king is happy and faithful to make us happy and whole in him. Our king rules and this church needs to be a place where that's shown. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for speaking to us once again the good news of the gospel. And we ask that this truth that you've given to us, that in fact it will impact our hearts and our lives and the areas in which we see we have strayed. We will seek to change by the power of your spirit. And we need your help to do it. I pray, Lord, that if there is roots of bitterness that are seeking to spring up or if we have struggles with one another, that in fact we'll be willing to go to one another and speak to it. And if that doesn't work, that we'll take the next step and bring others that, in fact, we can begin to see you at work in and through and we'll begin to experience the discipline that is for our good. There are those considering membership. I ask and pray that, that Father, I pray that people will consider membership, but also that they will see the great privileges it offers and also understand what it means, this wonderful badge you give us, Lord. And brings us into our, your family. I ask, Father, that, that we will be a true church, that these three marks will never depart from Heart City Church until that glorious day when our Lord Jesus returns. We pray it in his name. Amen.